to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 will be just three verses today, 12, 13, and 14. Mostly just one little phrase out of 14, but we'll see the whole context here. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of the Lord? (coughs) Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come upon us today. Open our eyes to your word. Bear us up upon the wings of Christ, Lord, that we would hear these things, not just with our ears, but with our minds and our hearts, to the point that they would penetrate us and change us from within, so that we would seek only the things of you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is God's word inspired for us today. Please be seated. Much like the opening chapters of the book of Joshua from the Old Testament is this section here in the first chapter of Acts. If you remember, the people had uh, spent their time wandering in the desert. They've kind of been weeded out, and they are brought to the edge of the promised land. And there you have the River Jordan, which is in flood stage. Remember, we've looked at this in the, in the past. And they are called to take the promised land. That is theirs. The Lord has promised it to them. There is no doubt about this. The Lord has demonstrated his strength previously, demonstrated his ability to do things that they could not even think or imagine. And he says, that is your land, and I brought you here. And what does he tell them to do? Wait. Wait. He gets them all the way up there. Now, in our humanness, we're thinking, come on. I don't want to wait. I want action. Okay, you've already promised this to us. Why am I sitting here on this side of the river when the promised land is on that side? Lord, do something and let's have at it. But the Lord says, wait. And as we know, they sit there for three days and they listen to the River Jordan rush by them in flood stage thinking, well, maybe the Lord's got to do something because we can't get across the river. And then he says, take up the ark, step into the river, and away you will go. And that is exactly what they do. When they step in the river, the water stops. Everybody goes across and into the promised land. Here in the book of Acts, we have much the same thing. It's very interesting here that we have the ascension of Christ. And then we think in our humanness, the next big event is the coming of the Holy Spirit. So why do we have this little section here that just takes up a couple of verses between the ascension of Christ, this big event... And the coming of the Holy Spirit, the next big event. Well, remember, Scripture does not waste words. In fact, it uses an economy of words to get across the important things. So this section must be very important because it is nestled between these two great big events. So he gets them there. Remember, remember they looked up into the heavens when Jesus ascended. They looked up into the heavens and they kind of gaped there. And then the angels come down and say, what are you staring at? You've got stuff to do. Now go on and do it. 
So they do. They follow through. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. So they are in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. Verse 12, we see they return to Jerusalem. And they're thinking, okay, now it's time for action. The angels themselves said, get moving. Don't stand here and gape. There are things to do. But yet they're called to Jerusalem. And here they are. And they wait. They wait. Now, sometimes we have periods like this in our lives where we feel we should go, we feel we should act, we feel we should move, but for some reason we are waiting. And these can be some of the most difficult times in our lives. We are pretty sure we know the answers. We are pretty sure we know the way. We are pretty sure we know the way either for us or for somebody else, but yet for some reason we are simply waiting. We can't seem to go. We can't seem to make action. We can't seem to jump to the, to, to the next thing which we think is we understand what is. Sometimes we are waiting on the Lord and we think, well, okay, Lord, I'm going to be patient and I'm just going to wait for you. And then we wait and we wait and we don't see the Lord doing anything. So we think that we ought to jump in and act because the Lord is just, well, he's not acting fast enough for us, right? It's not on our timetable. So we're going to act. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to act in my perfect time. And I want you to wait until my perfect time is revealed to you, until it is revealed to you. Now, waiting for the Lord does not necessitate inactivity. Just because we wait for the Lord does not mean we wait idly. In Joshua and here in Acts, waiting is clearly preparation. Waiting is clearly preparation. Sometimes we can see what and how we are to prepare, and other times we don't see what and how we are to prepare. Sometimes we see what God is doing in our lives. Sometimes we do not see what God is doing in our lives. Perhaps we are waiting because we need a little bit more character development. Perhaps we are having to wait because the Lord said you were not quite faithful enough in the little mundane things. And you need to focus on those and get a little bit more faithful. And then you'll be ready for the things that I have for you coming up. Whatever else the wait may be. From Scripture we know that when the Lord says wait, it is for preparation purposes. David spent how many years tending the sheep? How many years fighting off the wolves and the things just so he would be ready to be the shepherd of Israel? Moses spent time in the wilderness. Paul, three years in Egypt preparing for the work that the Lord had called them to do. The 10-day period prior to Pentecost is one of those waiting times for the disciples and for the followers of Christ. Now in verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. What were they waiting for? What the Father had promised. We know that to be the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, here we see their obedience. They are in Jerusalem, waiting, waiting, and waiting. But they were not out fishing. They were not returning to their old ways, nor were they sitting idly. They were active in their waiting for the Lord. In fact, they were hard at work doing the things that would prepare them and prepare the world for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were practicing obedience. They were in Jerusalem. They were fellowshipping together. All the church basically was gathered together in one place, and they were praying. Now, who was here? Let's look at this list of people before we get into actually what they were doing. You remember Jesus chose 12 apostles. There are only 11 left. Judas had killed himself. They hadn't replaced him yet. That comes uh, in the future. Uh, so they're down to 11. They give this list. Peter is listed first, as he usually was, and then James and John. 
We know that John wrote the Gospel and, and several other books in the New Testament. James, his brother, was killed by Herod, uh, Acts chapter 12, that is listed. We also have Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the political zealot, uh, and, and the list goes on. Several of these people we don't hear about anymore. Um, not that they didn't do anything else, but it just didn't serve the purpose of this theological book that we have to list what they did. Remember the, the endings of John. Um, this, I've written this so that you might believe, and by believing you might have eternal life. What about everything else that Jesus did? The books could not fill them. Okay, so keep that in mind. Uh, and then there is Judas. And remember, Judas Iscariot has, has killed himself. This is Judas, the son of James, a, another Judas. Now, if you look at this list, it is not very impressive. Okay? This is not the list of the Fortune 500 CEOs. This is not the list of the people that you would think are going to go out and change the world. But it is specifically these people that do change the world. It is specifically these people that we do not hold any human hope in that go out and make a big difference in the world. Why? Because the Lord works through them. And the day is coming, just in the next chapter, when they will be empowered to do these incredible things, these unlikely people doing incredible things. Now the next little group here is listed as the other women and Mary. Now we know from Scripture that women uh, came to Christ, uh, their lives were changed, their status really in first century culture was really changed with the coming of Christianity. They were no longer considered uh, simply property or something a little bit above uh, animals to be owned. They were raised up. I mean, there's no distinction in salvation between men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. All in Christ are the same. And this was a real earth-shattering thing to women in the first century. So women followed Christ, uh, they supported his ministry, they were involved in what was going on. And if you look at 114, right down at the end, it says, And Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. The last time she is mentioned in the New Testament. It apparently she, uh, obviously she knew that, that he was the son of God. She is a believer, she follows him, she prays to Christ. Um, and, but that's the last time that she is mentioned in the New Testament. And then, of course, this last section, and with his brothers. Joseph and Mary had other children. After Jesus was born, they went and had other children. They may have had daughters as well. They're not listed here. Only brothers are listed. Uh, and they didn't think much of Jesus as he was growing up or in the early days of his ministry. John chapter 7 really specifically refers to them thinking, oh, he's just not, this isn't the Messiah. He's just our little brother, our big brother, Okay. But yet by this time, they had become believers. By this time, they had understood who their half-brother was, and that was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, back to the three items that I listed before, obedience, fellowship, and prayer. Quickly going to look at obedience and fellowship. We'll spend most of our time today on prayer. They were learning obedience. Okay, there's a little quip. When I want to go, the Lord makes me wait. And when I want to wait, the Lord makes me go. Isn't that the way it is? I've got plans. And he says, no, those aren't my plans. You have to wait. And I say, well, Lord, I don't have plans. He says, I have plans. It's time to go. We have to be obedient to what the Lord says. Obedience is like patience. Be very careful how you pray for those things. Lord, make me obedient. If, you, if you're going to pray, make me obedient, what is going to happen? He's going to give you something to do. Okay, odds are something that you didn't want to do because you'd already been obedient if you'd had done it. 
Just like patience. Lord, make me patient, but don't try my patience. You know, that doesn't work, okay? It often seems that in situations where we learn the most obedience are those times where we have the least amount of explanation as to why. Now, give me a good reason why I have to do something. Explain it to me. I'm highly motivated then when I understand it. But the Lord does not always offer an explanation. Now, not that you ever would have said this to your children, but sometimes our children will go, well, why do I have to do that? And our response is, because I said so. <laughs> Lord, why do I have to do this? Because that's the way the Lord wants it. And his will is perfect. It is not corrupted by sin. He is holy. If he says this is what you ought to do, then this is what you ought to do. And sometimes he just does not give any further explanation than that. So he wants us to be obedient to what his word says, whether he gives an explanation, whether he gives a reason, or whether he simply says, it is my will, go and do this. Fellowship. Now, this was not a fellowship event, okay? Sometimes we'll have events specifically just to build the fellowship and to be, get, be together and to share a meal and just, just enjoy the, the sweetness of the, of the body of Christ together. This isn't it here. Times are tough, okay? Times are tough for this small group, and they needed one another. Small in numbers, uncertain future. They'd been instructed to wait, so they were waiting together. They were waiting together together. Now my guess is that during this time they began to talk about their experience with Christ. They began to share and remember those times where they followed him, those things that he said, those miraculous things that he did. They were probably buoyed in their faith by the fact that they saw him several times after his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven. Now this was a time of encouragement. They, they, they were not sitting at home because if they went home and sat by themselves, giving the, the sinful state of our minds, their minds probably would have, have worked themselves up into a little bit of depression. Well, Jesus is gone. He said, wait, well, it's been a couple days and nothing's happened. Maybe, we're, maybe this was all a waste. Maybe I've made a great mistake. And suddenly they're thinking in, in negative ways and they've slipped into depression and they're thinking that the Lord doesn't care about them anymore. 1 Kings 18 and 19, Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal, okay? There they are. They built two altars. And he said, this is a showdown between the God of the prophets of Baal and the one true God. So Elijah says, okay, go have at it. Build your altar. First one that consumes, the, you know, we'll see which one is consumed by fire. So the prophets of Baal dance around. They cut themselves. They sing. It goes on all day. They destroy Elijah's altar. And Elijah starts to make fun of them. You know, you know say louder. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Um, uh, the King James says, maybe your God has gone aside. That means he's gone to the restroom. Okay. <laughs> like that. And nothing happens. So they're all bleeding and exhausted. And they say, okay, Elijah, you have at it. And Elijah rebuilds his altar, and he says, okay, go throw some water on it. So they flood it once, they flood it twice, they flood it three times. He prays, fire comes down, it consumes the altar. Now, what do they do with the prophets of Baal? They start killing off the prophets of Baal. Uh, Jezebel is really upset with this. So she says, nobody eats until Elijah's dead. Elijah runs off. He goes to the mountain. He's all by himself. There he is in the cave. He's listening for the voice of the Lord. He thinks what? I'm the only one left. 
He's come off of the mountain of spiritual experiences. He has seen the fire from heaven come down and do this mighty work. And he's been victorious over the pagan gods. And now he's alone in the mountain. And he thinks, I'm, I'm the only one. He's gone from height to depth. And he's all by himself. And then he hears what? It's this still small voice that says, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal yet. You are not alone. See, fellowship is very important. It is very important for the believer. We must be together. We must gather together so that we can encourage one another, so that we can know about one another, so that we can hear the heartaches and the joys that we share. This is the body of Christ. We have ears and eyes and hands and feet all in this same room. We are all part of the body of Christ. One of the things that I've noticed in ministry is that the believers who isolate themselves from the body of Christ after a time of tragedy, a time of trial, a time of transition, often they take longer to come up with the answers from the Lord. They take longer to come to grips with what the Lord is doing, and they are more likely to slip into destructive patterns of thought because they have isolated themselves from the body of Christ. I just need time alone. Yeah, sometimes we need time alone. But sometimes that time alone slides into, I'm all by myself. Okay? And that's a danger. That is not what the body of Christ is to do. We need believers to be with, to share aspects of our life with, who will hold us accountable, who will care about our joys, who will care about our sorrows. So naturally this is an encouragement for you to seek out fellowship. We have small groups. We'll have more small groups in the fall. Be ready to hear about those things and to be involved, that you can enjoy the sweetness of the fellowship, not just on Sunday morning, but at other times, so that you can be encouraged. Now, verse 14, look there. We've seen obedience, we've seen fellowship, and now we see prayer. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Go to Jerusalem and wait, but they weren't idle. What were they doing? They were praying. They were praying. We are not told what they are praying for. Perhaps they were confessing their sin or their inadequacy for the work that Christ had called them to. Uh, Peter was there and he was well aware of his denial and his uh, failure. Perhaps he was confessing his sin and asking for forgiveness. Uh, perhaps they were giving thanks for all that the Father had done through Christ. Perhaps they were giving thanks for the uh, evidence and the demonstration of who Christ was as, as they got to see him after his resurrection. Uh, perhaps they were um, asking the Lord for strength for the work that he was calling them to do. Uh, all of these things perhaps could be going on in this time. Perhaps they were praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was promised to them. Now this is an interesting concept that we find in Scripture. You have things that are promised to you by the Lord, but yet we are called to pray for those things which the Lord has promised he will give to us. Didn't we do the Lord's Prayer today? I, I know we're, we're out of order here, so you have to think for a minute. Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What are we praying for? That his kingdom would come. Uh, hasn't he already promised that his kingdom is going to come? Yes. That thy will be done. Is there any way that we could stop his will? 
Well, no. I mean, but yet we are praying for his will. We are praying for his kingdom. And those are the things, some of the things that we are supposed to pray for. Scripture is clear that we should pray for the things God has promised. Pray for the things that God has promised. Now, don't ever underestimate this time of prayer. You might want to think, well, you know, I, I'm kind of, I get antsy. I have a little ADD, you know, I, get, I, I can't just sit there and pray. Uh, you know, what, what goes on? I really need, you know, I need action. But the Lord says sometimes, yeah, I want you to pray. Okay, Lord, I've got my list. What am I praying for? Pray for those things that are promised, the blessings of the Lord, the salvation of those uh, that belong to Christ. Uh, why should I pray for those things that you've already said are going to happen? Because the Lord wants our hearts to be tender to those things. The Lord wants us to seek after those things which he has promised so that we might know his blessings. Charles Spurgeon was asked, and, and he ran this, this large church in England. There were times he was preaching to over 10,000 people at a time before microphones were, were ever invented. And Spurgeon was asked if he could... If he could get rid of all the meetings in the church, what would be the last meeting to go? You know what he said? Prayer meeting. People would come from all over the world to see what was going on at this church. And, and they'd want to see the sanctuary, and they'd want to see all these cool things. And then on the night of the service, he would take them down to the basement. And they'd say, well, where are we going? He said, we're going to the furnace room. And they'd say, well, why do I want to see the furnace room? And they'd open the door, and there they were, hundreds of people praying for what was going to go on upstairs. He said, if this doesn't happen, nothing happens upstairs. If we don't seek the Lord and seek his blessing on our knees, then it doesn't matter what will happen upstairs, he won't be there. Calvin, John Calvin said, prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask of the Lord the things we know he has promised. We ask of the Lord the things we know he has promised. So he's saying when we come together to pray, it's not a time that we're confessing our doubt. It's a time that we're confessing our confidence. These are the things the Lord has promised us. These are the things the Lord does. We should be praying for those and confident that he will provide those things. God has promised to send his Holy Spirit. They've gone to Jerusalem. They're waiting for that spirit to come. They're waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled, and they are praying for it. Thus, God's promises should motivate us to, to pray and to persist until those things become a reality. The promises of God should cause us to pray and to persist in that until those things become a reality. Because we know he is faithful to fulfill his word. Like the apostles here, we should join with others. Join with others in prayer. Make sure we're not at odds with one another. Make sure we are praying in one accord. Together for the faith of the gospel, as Philippians chapter 1 says. Prayer shows our dependence upon the Lord. It shows our submission to His will. Because the apostles were men of obedience in prayer, we can trust their witness. That is the foundation upon which we build. We build upon Christ and the stones of the apostles. This is how the church is built up. Now, if you look at the history of the church, the great revivals have all been preceded by a season of focused prayer, united prayer. Sometimes only a few at first, but always they've been started with prayer. 
Now, revival is the heart is in the heart of the individual is the work of the Lord. You cannot revive something yourself. It must be the Lord that does the work. But when God wants to do a great work, He begins by having His people pray. Let me give you a history lesson. The Fulton Street Prayer Meeting which sparked a revival in 1858, began with six people in the consistory room of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York City. On the first night, the first person to arrive was 30 minutes late. I mean, is that the way you start a revival? We're going to meet at 7, and the first person doesn't get there till 7.30. The agenda was simple, the salvation of souls. In six months, there were 10,000 businessmen praying every day between noon and 1 o'clock in New York City. After six months, that's how quickly it spread. They would pray for the souls of their family members, their neighbors, their co-workers. They would pray by name. Lord, Randy Jenkins is in need of salvation. He's in need of your grace and mercy. Would you come and open his eyes? Change Randy's life. That is how they would pray. Very, very specifically. Arthur Tappan Pearson said, There has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. Pearson was born in New York City in the early 1800s. He was a Presbyterian minister in New York and Detroit and Philadelphia. In 1889, he went on a missionary trip to England where he met Charles Spurgeon. In 1891, 1892, he was lecturing on missions at Edinburgh. In 1891, Spurgeon took sick and asked Pearson to fill the pulpit and Pearson did for the next two and a half years, and Spurgeon passed away during that time. We must prepare for any fresh outpouring of the Spirit by united and persistent prayer. And you say to yourself, well, Rand, I've looked at the, the order of what goes on in the week, and won't we have that covered? I mean, isn't there that group that meets on Monday night, and they've been meeting for Monday or Tuesday night for 25 years. I'm so glad we have somebody praying here at this church. That's not enough. It's just not enough. I don't think we have it covered. We have things that we believe the Lord has or is calling us to do. But our question is, are we ready for them? Are we ready for them? We've got certain ducks in a row. Are our hearts prepared for what the Lord has called us to do? Or is he telling us to wait and pray and seek the blessings that he has already promised us? Maybe we're in the central Presbyterian version of the first couple, the first chapter here of, of Acts, right here in this section, where the Lord says, I want you to pray. I want you to get on your knees and I want you to gather as a body. And it says, What? Being of one mind, we're continually devoting themselves to prayer. Pray for what I have promised. Maybe we aren't seeing a great work of evangelism in Huntsville because we are not praying. I, I don't know about the Methodists. I don't know about the Church of Christ. All I know is about us here. Okay? Maybe we're not seeing uh, a great uh, spiritual awakening uh, in, in, in this area because we are not praying. Maybe we aren't seeing the growth of the church here in Huntsville because we are not praying. How did the early church prepare for the coming of the Spirit and the work that would change the world? All with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Obedience, fellowship, prayer. Obedience, fellowship, prayer. 
Matthew Henry, commentary writer from the 1800s, wrote this great commentary on Exodus, and this is how he starts his, on Exodus chapter 2. That period when Israel was still in bondage in Egypt, before God unbound them, he put it into their hearts to cry out to him. In other words, he is saying God does that which he intends to do by blessing, by having his people pray for that blessing. God brings blessing by having his people pray for that blessing. So he makes us feel this need. I feel this need for the Lord's work. I feel this need for God's blessing so that we will cry out for the very things he intends to give us. When will he give them to us? When we have cried out to him. When we have laid our hearts bare before him. When we have devoted ourselves with one mind to the prayer. So here in the first chapter of Acts... God intends to build His church. And He intends to build it by pouring out His Spirit. And when is the Spirit going to come? After they have devoted themselves continually to prayer. What does the Lord want to give His children? Does He want to give us snakes and stones? Or does He want to give us bread and good things? We must pray for those things. If He has placed us in a position where we are ready... If he has placed us in a position where we have been blessed, if he has placed us in a position that all we, uh, we seem to be waiting for, for, for the next thing the Lord has prepared us for, then perhaps we need to wait and pray. Pray for his blessing. What keeps us from experiencing these things? What keeps us from doing what the Lord has called us to do? Well, I came up with some reasons, but I don't think they're very good reasons. Was it money that he keeps us that keeps us from doing the things that the Lord wants us to do? Well, that hasn't been an issue here. If you look back, and we don't talk much about it, but remember when we left the PCUSA, we had to pay $250,000. And we had to pay, we had 30 days to pay $100,000. But you know what we happened to have just sitting in the bank? Uh, $100,000. And the next year, we had to pay $75,000. And do you know how much over the budget was that year? $75,000. And then uh, the next payment we had was another $75,000. And I can remember sitting in a session meeting, and it's about halfway through the year, and everything is pretty tight, and we don't, we're not making that payment. There's no way we're going to do it. And we said, well, the Lord's got us here. He'll do something. Next week, we received a check in the mail for $111,000 because of some obscure tax law in New York. The Lord does it. If he's called you somewhere, if he's gotten you there, he will do it. It has not really been an issue. We dove in across the street. We're going to redo that building. You realize we've raised almost a million dollars above and beyond our budget in the last three years. Okay? Do we have debt still? Yeah, of course we have debt. I mean, we've built that building. We've purchased that other building. Are we going to tackle that debt in the next couple of years? Of course we are. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it together. We're going to do it because the Lord calls us to do it. Because he has brought us to this place. We will do it together. Well, what else might be holding us back? Is it our skills that are holding us back? Well, this congregation is representative of Madison County. High achiever, high education, high motivator, high, high self-starters. That's basically what makes up this group of believers. Okay, We have skills coming out our ears. That's not an issue here. Does our level of compassion or mercy hold us back? Well, no. You remember, we got word Kim's house burned down. What happened? Oh, there was an outpouring of cash, an outpouring of clothes. You know, when somebody's in need, we are on it in a heartbeat. 
Okay? And those are just the things you know about. There's a whole bunch of stuff that nobody but Libri know about. That people come and say, here, meet this need, would you? Don't let anybody know. They do it out of the compassion and mercy. We are a generous and compassionate crowd. Well, do we lack wisdom? Mm. Well, look around this room and see the spiritual maturity that fills this church. Okay? Not just the maturity of gray hair, but the maturity of the deep, rich things of God's Word. People have feasted on the Word of God here for years. There is a richness here in the spiritual lives. Does our energy level hold us back? Well, we're very busy. We've got kids and grandkids and work and life in general. But I've seen people drop everything to go and do what the Lord calls them to do. Because the Lord empowers them to go above and beyond. Do we lack a unity? Does that hold us back? Well, we have been working very hard in the past year, two years, about our in-house relationships. How to build small groups, expand the circle of those caring for one another in the congregation, creating venues for fellowship that we might enjoy the sweetness of the Spirit, and we're getting better at it. We look at our theological unity. We look at our relationship unity, our emotional unity. These things are very strong. These things are very good. But what holds us back? I had, I had to read this all week, okay? I know you get it now, and I've told you before, but I've chewed on it all week, and I didn't want to go here. I really didn't. But I didn't see any other choice. I believe the Lord has brought this congregation to this point in history and in our study of the Word right here in Acts and in, in the ministry that He calls us to do so that we might pray. And you think, that's it, Rand? All this buildup? I mean, weren't we going to have some big project to do? project is to pray because that's what they did here between the ascension of the lord and the coming of the spirit they had work to do and what was that work pray that we might cry out for the things the lord is ready to give us by way of his blessing that we might cry out to him he is ready to bless us we have to cry out to him well great Personally, what does that mean? Well, there's a conviction in my life this week that this is what we need to do. But the Lord has to convict you as individuals. Because just to do it because, well, Randy said we needed to do it, that that doesn't cut it. You have to do it because the Lord has so convicted you that you have to pray, that you have to get on your knees. That's when the Lord does the work. You must come to the conclusion yourself as each individual believer that we need to pray and we need to pray with each other. Going home in your personal devotions and praying, that's good. We need to pray as a congregation. We need to pray as a body of believers. We need to pray by name for those that we know who need salvation. By name. We need to pray specifically for the things that the Lord has promised to bless us with. We need to praise Him specifically for the things that He does in those answers to prayer. When one of those names comes to Christ, we better be praying and praising the Lord because of it. Well, how do we start? We start with our own hearts. If I went out and, and said, uh, there's a circle out on the sidewalk. It's big enough for one person to get in. I want you to get in and pray for revival of everything that is within that circle. You start here, okay? But you also start with those around you. Are there people in your lives that you need to go and seek forgiveness from? 
Are there people in your lives that you need to go and make restitution to? Are there people in your lives that you need to go and extend compassion to and mercy to? Those are some of the things that we do internally. Those are some of the works that I have to do in my own heart so that I am ready to pray to the Lord. Spurgeon said there is a mysterious, supernatural energy which comes from the third person of the Blessed Trinity, which really in this age falls upon men and women as truly as when Peter spoke in languages unknown to him or perform miracles, and though the power of the working of miracles is not given in the same fashion now, yet spiritual power is given, and this spiritual power is as evident and just as surely with us today, if we possess the Holy Spirit as with the apostles. Now, if we want to get this, the most likely place to find it is in the prayer meeting. It is of no use for me to preach to the people, my dear Christian brothers and sisters, unless you pray for them. It is of no use holding special services for the quickening of the spiritually dead unless the Holy Spirit is brought to them by our prayers. It may be that you who pray have more to do with the blessed results than we who preach. So corporately, what are we going to do about it? This is what it came down to. We don't get to passages like this for no reason. We don't get to things like this just because, oh, we're going through Acts, so we're going to cover everything. No. The Lord brings us to these things and quickens our hearts about these things for a particular purpose. And I can only come to one conclusion, that we can't study a passage like this and agree that revival and renewal and the great works of God start and are sustained by prayer. We can't come to see God's word, that he is ready to give us blessing, that he has promised and, and all we must do is to start to pray. And we can't see these things and agree that they are true and then go home and say, great. I wonder what's going to happen next week. We can't read these things in the Word and say, that well, they really don't impact my life. Yes, they do. So for the foreseeable future, we'll take the pattern of the Fulton Street revival. Monday through Friday, from 12 to noon, the sanctuary will be open. Every day that I can, I will be here, and we will pray. Will it be fancy? No. We are going to pray for people by name that we know who need salvation. We are going to pray for specific events and specific purposes. We will pray for the blessing of God. If I'm not here, that's the agenda. Start to pray. Nobody can pray more than five minutes. That was the rule at Fulton. He said, this is not a time for flowery language. This is not a time to show off your great spiritual depth. This is a time for business, the business of prayer. We will seek the Lord. We will pray for salvation. We will pray for renewal. We will pray for revival. And we will trust that the Lord will bring those things he has promised to us because we are seeking him out in prayer. We will be on our knees if you can. We will be direct and we will pray with the expectation that God will answer. Monday through Friday, 12 to 1. If you can come, great. If you can come for 20 minutes, great. We're not going to put signs out. We are not going to make this a big thing. If the Lord draws a thousand people here, he will. If it's me and two others, that's, that'll be great. We're still going to pray. If I'm, I can't be here, then Dan will be here. If he can't be here, then whoever's here, you know the agenda. You will pray. And we will see what the Lord will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, can it really be this simple? This simple that we as believers are called to pray and to seek you for those things you have promised to give us? 
You will do the saving, but you call us to pray for those who do not know Christ. We are to pray earnestly and and fervently. And we are to rejoice in the great miracle of salvation. You call us to pray for those things which you have for us. You call us to pray for the ministry that you give to us. You call us to be faithful in these things that we might be united and continually in prayer. Lord, you don't care about our language. You don't care whether we have the right theological terms when we come to you. You care about our hearts. Their hearts would be broken and contrite before you. That we would come earnestly desiring to know your blessing and to know your will and to see the salvation of those around us. Convict our hearts, Lord, that when we pray, it would be because we are compelled by the love of Christ to do this and that we can do no other. And we will be faithful until we hear your answers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.